everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering probably the most brutal serial killer that we've covered yet, which is saying a lot considering all of the different serial yeah, killers we've really actually is. covered. Today we will be diving very deep into the truly horrifying true story of Robert Willie Picton. This was a killer that I had never even heard of until one of you out there, I believe a Canadian fan out there, actually suggested that I look into uh, this guy. Oh, and, cool. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know, we have a request form, which is in our show notes and description boxes. And basically, if you go on there, you can suggest topics, you can give us uh, personal stories that we might cover at some point. Yeah, and you can attach media if you got any photos or videos. Yes, so yes. Which we on, love to utilize those. On that on that note, too, um, one of the things we're trying to do this year at some point, I don't know when the first episode will be, is do sort of a viewer-listener episode where yeah. I actually retell your stories and encounters that you've you've had in your life. I feel like that would be so interesting. Yeah, so. I, there's something just truly chilling about sort of telling it from that you know first person perspective of, yeah definitely you know, somebody's personal experience and i just want to say though that in order for your story to be considered i'm looking for stories that have some shred of evidence or some way to prove in in some fashion that this actually happened to you because obviously anybody can come up with a wild crazy <laughs> yeah you know story of something happening to them but we want to cover the most legit ones, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. on the show eventually. And, you know, we'll do an episode like that in the future. Uh, but yeah, that request forms in there. And thank you to whoever suggested that I look into Robert Picton. Well, I don't know if I'm actually going to thank you or not, because <laughs> this guy is truly yeah. the, the stuff of nightmares. We're and, in for a ride, man. And many, many horror movies, I feel like, take inspiration from this guy. You were saying Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? A little, a little bit, bit. A little bit. Yeah, maybe that. There's, I'm sure there's others out there that I'm not not even yeah. think of right now but it's it, this one is just beyond i mean it's beyond comprehension that somebody so evil like this exists out there and and did the things that that robert did while he was on the loose for a very very long time um, but before we get into that i wanted to also mention that one way you can support the show that is absolutely free to you that really does help us out is by going to spotify yes spotify is the premier podcast platform now and you guys have helped us rank in the top 24 podcasts in the entire United States of America. Yeah, thank you guys. That is huge. And it really means a lot to us. Yeah, it's cool to see our hard work pay off. I mean, we, we Joel and I put our heart and soul and, and so much time and energy into the show. And just see it resonate with so many people. And just see the, the immense growth that we've experienced so far this year has been really, really cool. So to support the show, just go to Spotify find lights out hit follow make sure you hit follow there as well and what's nice about that is it'll just automatically let you know when we post a new episode and what's great is that spotify now lets us upload the video version of the show and this is great because now you can enjoy audio if you're in the car yeah you know listening over the speakers or if you're home you can also watch the show right there in your spotify app or on your computer or your tv or wherever you are mm -hmm. which is really cool and the Spotify numbers actually factor into the performance for the show, unlike YouTube. Um, but obviously, we still love all of our YouTube uh, watchers out there. So, you know, if you're not subscribed over there, too, uh, we just hit over 300,000 there, too, which is crazy. Yeah. So thank you to everybody out there. I just wanted to yes, give everybody a big thank you for the support for the show and just where we're taking it. And, you know, just know that we've got so many things planned for it and we're just getting started. Yep. But this episode of Lights Out is brought to you by Care of Bombas and HelloFresh. More on that later. But as it turns out, if you live with foul, filthy pigs long enough, you become one. Robert Willie Picton, a simple Canadian pig farmer, lived just outside of Vancouver, and he struggled his entire life to connect with other humans. So he figured the best way to connect with them would be by treating them just like the pigs he raised on his farm. 
which meant slaughtering and butchering them. One after another, he killed helpless women until he became the most prolific serial killer in North America. And with that being said, viewer, listener discretion is advised for this one. This is very graphic in nature. Definitely one that some may find disturbing. I really think all of us probably find it disturbing, but just want to put that out there before we dive into the very twisted and demented life of Robert William Picton. Robert William Picton was born on October 24th, 1949. He went by the nickname Willie. His parents, Leonard and Louise, owned and operated a pig farm in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, which is 15 miles east of Vancouver. Their lifestyle was typical for rural North America. They raised, slaughtered, and butchered pigs for a living, but they didn't separate the farm from the farmhouse. What's wild is that the pigs were allowed to run through the house at will, so their living room and kitchen became as dirty as the pig pen. Willie's older sister Linda lived in Vancouver with distant relatives, and her father didn't think a girl should be raised on a pig farm. So Willie and his little brother David grew up on the farm and helped their parents with daily chores. They worked 12-hour days, five days a week, and the other two days, they went to school. Their mother Louise ran a strict household, so when they weren't at school, she constantly hounded Willie and his brother every day, making sure they worked from sunup to sundown. And if they ever slacked off, her shrill voice would screech across the farm, yelling at the boys to get back to work. At times, it seemed like Louise cared more about the pigs than she cared about her sons. The pigs were allowed to run through the house because Louise treated them like family or sometimes better than family. She didn't mind that everyone and everything smelled like manure and mud, and the whole family got used to living in filth. On school days, Willie and David would dress in their overalls from the day before. The denim would be coated in a thick layer of grime. And when they got on the bus to school, no one wanted to sit next to them. So they quickly became outcasts. Willie got the nickname Stinky Piggy, and he never made friends at school as a result. He was not liked at school, and his teachers thought he was slow and lacked motivation. He didn't catch on as fast as his classmates did, so his teachers gave him special lessons. Willie and his brother hated school so much that they would ditch class, hike all the way home, and hide under their beds until school let out so that their parents didn't know. Since he didn't have any friends and struggled with school, Willie put his focus on the pig farm. Tending to the pigs became his main goal in life, and it was the only thing he was good at. He often spent his time completely alone or with the pigs. Some say that Willie would sometimes cut open the chest of the large hogs and climb inside. He would then close himself inside and stay there, just resting in blood and guts because he liked being alone. He only found joy with the farm animals, whether dead or alive. When he was 11 years old, he used all of his savings to buy a calf. And when he brought it home, it became his only friend he had in the world. Every day after school, he would rush home to feed and nurture it. He actually loved this calf more than anything else. But one day he came home and the calf was missing. When he asked his mother where the calf was, she told him to go look in the barn. So he walked across the property down to the barn and looked inside. And that's where he saw his calf, hanging by two hooks, pierced through its hind legs. It had been stabbed in the throat, and its blood was collected into a large bucket below. Its hide was removed, and all that was left was its muscle, bones, and fat that swung back and forth on the hooks. His only friend had been slaughtered. His only connection to affection and love had been severed completely. He had struggled to connect with his friends and family. And now he had absolutely nothing. He refused to talk to anyone for four days. 
His father tried to comfort him and told him that he might feel better if he ate a little bit, not of anything, but of the meat that they harvested from his calf. After the death of his only friend, Willie continued to struggle in school. So in 1963, at age 14, he dropped out and found work as a butcher's apprentice. After growing up on a pig farm his entire life, he had developed keen skills at butchering livestock. He knew exactly how to skin the animals and where to cut them. And he caught on quickly. And slaughtering animals quickly became second nature to Willie. As he butchered the animals, dark thoughts churned in his mind. But no one had any clue how dark they became. Willie was a quiet boy who kept his thoughts to himself, and day after day he would cut into the animal's flesh with joy. He continued the apprenticeship for four years, and also worked on his parents' pig farm. Things went on as normal, and Willie felt comfortable working there. He was good at it, and the farm was the only place he fit in. But soon, everything on the Picton farm changed. On October 16, 1967, his little brother David had just gotten his driver's license and wanted to take the family truck out for a joyride. As he sped down the dirt road near the farmhouse, he lost control of the wheel, and the truck swerved into the shoulder. As he tried to gain control of the truck, David ran over a young boy named Tim Barrett, who was walking along the edge of the road. He felt the tires drive over him as the truck skidded to a stop. In the rearview mirror, he saw the boy lying there motionless. He got out of the truck to check on him, but the boy looked completely dead. His bones had been crushed and his blood had begun to soak into the dirt beneath him. In a panic, David ran back to the car and sped home. Not knowing what to do, he told his mother what had happened, and surprisingly, she knew exactly what to do. Without hesitating, she told David to park the car in the garage and wipe off any blood and try to repair the dent. Meanwhile, Luis went out to the road and found the boy along the shoulder. His body was mangled and soaked in blood. She heard him moaning. The boy was still alive. She knelt down over him, rolled him over, and she just continued pushing him until he rolled down into the ditch along the side of the road. It had rained the day before, so the ditch had filled up with water. And so the boy's body slowly rolled down into this muddy pool below. He fell face down in the water, and his bones were shattered, and he didn't have the strength to get out. As Elise walked away from the scene, she could hear the boy's last few breaths as bubbles came up from the water. By the time she got back to the farmhouse, the boy had drowned to death. When police later discovered the body, they actually ruled the death an accident, but Willie knew the truth. He knew that his brother had run over an innocent boy, and his mother had proceeded to kill him, and his mother's antisocial behavior began to rub off on him. He had seen the way she killed his calf when he was a boy, and how she casually just murdered a young boy so that David wouldn't get in trouble. Willie was raised in a household where if you could do something and get away with it, then you were doing something right. And this shaped Willie from a young age, and he thought about how far he could push it. When Willie turned 21 in 1970, he quit his apprenticeship as a butcher. He started working full-time on his parents' farm. Although he saw how terrible his mother could be, he struggled to connect with anyone else. He still couldn't make any friends, and his learning disabilities made it hard for him to find any other work. So it looked like the farm was his only option. He fed the pigs, shoveled manure, and bought pigs at local auctions. He would then bring them home and slaughter them. Soon the parts of the pigs that he couldn't use would pile up, and he'd have to take it to the animal waste facility called West Coast Reduction near Vancouver. He stored the animal waste in barrels, and he drove into town and dropped them off at the facility. While he was in town, he would wander over to the neighborhood known as Low Track, which was the downtown's east side. Low Track was a 10-block neighborhood known for its poverty and despair, even though the rest of Vancouver was wealthy for the most part. But here on the Low Track streets, it was dark and depressing. The homeless wandered the streets among drug addicts and struggling sex workers, and nearly 75% of them were indigenous women just down on their luck. From a survey done in 1995, 73% of the women in low track entered the sex trade as children, and the neighborhood became known as a place to get prostitutes as young as 11 years old. And the girls were given the nickname Twinkies. 73% of the women were also single mothers that had an average of three kids. Most of their kids were cared for by the state since their mothers couldn't take care of them. 
The women were also addicted to heroin or crack cocaine since drugs were extremely common in Lotrec. And in 1998, there was an average of one overdose per day, the highest in Canadian history. The neighborhood of Lotrac was a rough place to say the least. And Willie? He would just stroll into a nearby bar and casually pick up a prostitute. Since he struggled with building relationships with people and getting affection, he paid sex workers to fill the void. He would spend more money compared to other patrons. And word got around to the other sex workers that Willie was the guy to be with. He tipped well and wasn't aggressive like a lot of the other men. He can often be found at the Astoria Hotel, a pub on East Hastings Street, and there he was treated like anyone else, which would made him feel like he was finally where he belonged, and women would constantly come up to him and offer sexual favors. He had never experienced this kind of social power before, and soon he wanted more. He was finally seen as an equal in low track, but he became addicted to power, and he didn't want to be seen as just an equal. At home, though, he was a simple farm boy, but in Lotrak, he was the big spender, well known around town. So he began picking up prostitutes more frequently. He would often approach them in his van with a smile. The women thought he was friendly and kind, so they would hop in the van without a second of thought. But Willie eventually became bored of the usual night of sex and affection, and he soon realized the amount of power he had over women once they were alone with him. And it was only a matter of time until his need for more power escalated. By the time he was in his mid-twenties, Willie had developed a habit of butchering pigs during the day and going to low track at night. He was a creature of habit, and his lifestyle was generally the same day after day. But his life soon changed when his parents became sick. They were getting old, and their health had been slowly failing over the years. By January 1978, Willie's father died. And not long after, Willie's mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And Willie watched as his mother slowly dwindled away. She had once been a strong, frightful woman, but now she was weak and frail. Willie had become his mother's caretaker. He had to bathe her, change her diapers, and feed her every day. But by April 1978, Louise Picton passed away. She left the property to her children and they split their inheritance, but Willie's brother and sister didn't want to run the family farm. His sister had left years before, and his brother didn't like farm work. He had actually joined the local Hell's Angels and opened up a chop shop on the property. So Willie was the only one left to run the pig farm. Life on the farm was what Willie knew best, so he knew there was no way he could give up on the farm. He didn't think he could find work anywhere else, so he lived in a trailer on the far side of the property, while his brother David lived in the main farmhouse. And this became the first time in his life that he had a total freedom on the farm, and he wanted to take advantage of it. He would often invite women over to his trailer, and sometimes they'd go out to a movie or he would show them how to butcher a pig. He would then pay the women to clean out his trailer or help out around the farm. Even though they were friendly and helped out with chores, they usually didn't want to have sex with Willie. So he would still have to drive to Low Track and cruise Hastings Street to pick up prostitutes. But after a while, things started to escalate, and one night, as he wandered around Low Track, he picked up a 14-year-old girl working as a prostitute. She got into his passenger seat, and they rode around until he found a secluded spot in Low Track. Willie saw that she was young, and he could easily overpower and manipulate her. As she looked over at him, he pulled out a butchering knife from his belt. The streetlight reflected off of the blade, and she could tell it was recently sharpened. A few drops of dried pig's blood still coated the handle and he pointed the knife at her and threatened to kill her as she fought back. He then sexually assaulted her in the front seat of his truck, and once he was done, he threw her out of the car into an abandoned parking lot. This was the farthest Willie had ever escalated in an encounter with a prostitute, and it satisfied his thirst for power, at least for the time being. And for the next decade, he went back to his usual routine. He butchered the pigs during the day and strolled around low track at night, looking for prostitutes. Life went on as usual, until Willie and his siblings sold the north end of their parents' property for $5.6 million Canadian dollars in 1994. Between Willie and his brother David, they were new millionaires. In 1996, when Willie was 52, he and his brother used their money to start a social events service on their farm. They converted the slaughterhouse into a non-profit social venue called Piggy Palace Good Time Society. 
They registered their business with the Canadian government, and they claimed that their business was to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions. In other words, they wanted to throw massive parties now that they had some money. Sometimes they would cram more than 1,800 people into the renovated slaughterhouse and have live bands perform concerts inside. It quickly became a place where locals could do drugs, drink, and eat some pork. Willie would roast giant pigs and pull at the meat with his dirty hands in front of everyone. Local business owners and city council members could often be seen inside or hanging out at the bar. Willie would also pick up prostitutes from low track and bring them out to the wild parties. Then he would invite them into his trailer, the same one he still lived in at the other end of the property. Inside the trailer, Willie would experiment with bondage, and he often tied the women up. He was thrilled with the control that he had over them once they were helpless and bound on his bed. And night after night, he exploited the prostitutes' desperation for drugs and money. He would force them to do whatever he wanted, and if they didn't listen to his commands, he would quickly turn violent. In March 1997, Willie picked up a prostitute named Wendy Eisetter. She had a history of drug abuse and was desperate for more money. So she went back to Willie's trailer with him. As you can probably imagine, his place was absolutely filthy, but she had seen worse. As she took off her clothes and laid down on the bed, she could sense something was terribly wrong. She had been in a dark, filthy trailer with a strange man before, but by the look on Willie's face, she could tell he was up to something else especially when Willie brought out a pair of handcuffs. He then got on top of her and tried to force them around Wendy's wrists. He managed to get the handcuffs around both wrists, but she could still move around. And she immediately fought back and actually kicked Willie off of her. She then ran down the small hallway in the trailer into the kitchen, where she grabbed the first knife she could see. She could hear Willie's footsteps running down the hallway not far behind her. And when she turned around, he stood there, out of breath with a knife in his hand, he lunged at her and cut her across the stomach, but she fought back. They tore apart the kitchen as they fought each other with knives. For every slash Willie could get on Wendy, she slashed him back, until both of their blood had splattered across the kitchen. Luckily, Wendy was able to escape and run all the way to the closest road. She had cut up Willie so badly that he didn't have the strength to chase her down, and he eventually fainted. After Wendy made it to the road, an elderly couple spotted her and took her to the Royal Columbian Hospital. She was coated in blood and still had the handcuffs around her wrists. When she got to the hospital, Wendy had so many wounds that her left lung was punctured, and she had been partially disemboweled. Luckily, they were able to treat her injuries, and Wendy survived. When police asked her about the handcuffs, she told them that Willie Picton had the keys. By coincidence, Willie had driven himself to the same hospital that night, and one of the hospital nurses found a pair of handcuffed keys in Willie's pockets. At that point, police quickly arrested Willie and charged him with assault. Do you drink? Oh, no. No. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't use drugs. And everybody says, how come your eyes are so broken bloodshot? I says, I turned around. I didn't take the knife away from her. I did not take the knife away from her. I aimed it to her, and I knifed her twice. I did do that. I admit I did that. That's one thing I didn't, shouldn't have done. You've never taken any of the prostitutes back to your trailer? Not since this incident, no. <laughs> but before that incident? No, 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 no. But in the end, Wendy was too scared to testify in court. Prosecutors also suspected that she was on drugs and too unstable to make a testimony. She never showed up to the trial, and as a result, the case was dropped, and Willie was let free. If the case had continued and the police had looked a bit harder, they would have seen that the clothes and rubber boots that Willie wore that night had the DNA of two missing women on them, but his clothes and boots would end up sitting in an evidence locker for another seven years. After being let go, Willie went back to his farm, where he continued throwing parties and inviting prostitutes into his trailer. He wasn't going to let his close encounter with death and prison stop his behavior. If anything, he now knew he could get away with assault. On another night in August of 1997, he went back to Low Track and picked up a woman named Marnie Frey. Marnie was known as a selfless woman and a good friend, but she was exposed to drugs at an early age, and her life took a dark turn. The last time she talked to her family, she was on the phone with her stepmother. They planned to send a care package for her birthday, 
and at the end of the call, they exchanged I love yous. After this call, her family never heard from Marnie again. She was addicted to heroin and often hung around Low Track looking for more. One night, Willie promised to buy her drugs if she slept with him, and she agreed. He took her back to his trailer, and after they had sex, Marnie told him to give her some heroin, like he had promised. But she could tell by the look in his eyes that he had lied to her. She wasn't going to get her fix that night. She wasn't even going to leave that trailer alive. Willie's desire for control exploded right in front of her, and he was ready to take his violence to the next level. Sex and manipulation were no longer satisfying him. He wanted something more. So he turned his rage towards Marnie. He pinned her down to the bed and forced a rope around her neck. Marnie tried to scream, but the rope cut off her windpipe. Willie pulled the ends of the rope as hard as he could, and as the edges of the rope burned into her neck, he held on for as long as he could until her body went limp. He then pushed her to the floor and dragged her by the feet to the slaughterhouse. He then took a large butchering knife and he began hacking her into small pieces. Some experts believed he scattered her remains around his property where he loaded her butchered remains into animal waste barrels and dropped her off at the local West Coast Reduction Facility. While others believed he actually fed her remains to his pigs. But either way, Marnie was never seen again. Her stepmother had called the police several times about Marnie's disappearance, but they didn't bother looking for her. Police didn't even file an official missing persons report until three months after Marnie went missing, and her friends in Lotrek had no idea what had happened to her. They didn't realize a monster was driving down Hastings Street every night looking for his next victim. And now that Willie had a taste for murder, there was no going back. Lotrek was his perfect hunting ground. Before we continue, I'm going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. So between 1995 and 1997, 21 women disappeared from the streets of Low Track. Willie was a creature of habit and he had no intention of ending his violent sexual spree against the women of Vancouver. Night after night, he picked up women, took them back to his trailer and had sex with them. And the ritual wouldn't be complete until he murdered them and hacked their corpses into small pieces. He took pleasure in killing and dismembering the women he took, the same way he took pleasure in lying and manipulating them into having sex with him. It was one of the few ways Willie could find power and control in his life. He was addicted to this new lifestyle and the police seemed to not care about the disappearance of women in low track. By 1998, nine more women disappeared from the streets and Vancouver police didn't investigate any of them. When friends and family would file police reports for the missing women, police would just tell them that these types of women always hopped on the local bus and went somewhere else. Police weren't interested in investigating the disappearance of local prostitutes, especially indigenous women, and they definitely weren't interested in investigating a case where there wasn't a body. But the women of Lotrak were fully aware that they were being targeted. They often met at the local shelter known as the Wish Drop-In Center, where the homeless women of Lotrak could eat and sleep. They told each other to be safe out there on the streets since a monster was on the loose. When Elaine Allen, the shelter coordinator, began reporting the disappearances, police ignored her. They made the same excuses before. They just told her that these women would often run off and they were probably fine. And as women continued to disappear, police denied there was any problem in Lotrak. So Willie took advantage of this and he continued picking up more and more women. He had still maintained his reputation around town as the nice guy, and local prostitutes knew that he paid well. Since there was no investigation into what was happening to all these missing women, the women didn't suspect Willie as the killer. And as a result, the murders continued. One night, a friend of Willie's named Lynn Ellingson was hanging out in Willie's trailer. Lynn was a crack addict, and she lived on Willie's farm for a few months in 1999. Earlier in the night, she and Willie picked up a prostitute from Low Track. Willie took the woman into one of the rooms in the trailer while Lynn got high in the other and fell asleep on his couch. But something woke her up in the middle of the night. The trailer was deadly quiet, but when she looked out the trailer window, she noticed the lights in the slaughterhouse were on, and she looked around the trailer and Willie was nowhere to be found. So she got up from the couch and headed towards the slaughterhouse. She walked across a long dark field 
and when she got close to the slaughterhouse, she could hear a pounding sound, like metal against wood, over and over. She couldn't tell exactly what it was, but it was consistent and quick. When she rounded the corner of the slaughterhouse, she saw Willie working at one of the tables. It looked like he was butchering one of his pigs. But when she looked next to Willie, she saw the body of a woman hanging from two meat hooks through her chest. She was Georgina Faith Pappen, a mother of seven children, also Willie's latest victim. This was the same woman Lynn had helped Willie pick up earlier that night. Her face had been completely removed. Streaks of blood ran down the woman's naked body. Her feet dangled towards the floor, and Lynn saw the purple painted toenail swinging back and forth. On the table in front of Willie, there was a mess of blood, guts, and black hair. Willie noticed Lynn standing in the doorway. He was covered in blood and looked like a madman. He went over and grabbed her by the wrist, and he pulled her into the slaughterhouse where the blood and guts covered the table. She tried to close her eyes, but he forced her to look at the mess. And as she looked down at the chopped up bits of flesh, blood, and muscle, he whispered into her ear, She was a pig, so I butchered her like a pig. Lynn thought she was going to be next, but surprisingly, Willie let her go and paid for a cab to take her back to Vancouver. As she got into the cab, she noticed Willie had left a mark of Georgina's blood on her wrist. So once she made it back into Vancouver, she considered going to the police. But she was scared that Willie would come after her next. So she hid where Willie couldn't find her. And as a result, Willie continued his killing spree. By February of 1999, Willie may have killed dozens of women. But police kept ignoring the monster that prowled the streets. All the while, Willie kept up the same routine. One night, he picked up another woman named Brenda Wolf. When Willie rolled up in his pickup truck, Brenda said she was looking for drugs. And like he did with all the other women, Willie lied and said he could hook her up with drugs if she came back to his trailer and had sex with him. Brenda was a young indigenous woman who struggled with sobriety most of her life, and her family suspected she suffered from mental illness. In low track, she worked in a local eatery and was known as a street enforcer. She was known to protect people who had to sort out matters with dangerous people in the neighborhood. Although she wasn't primarily a sex worker, she was desperate for money when she relapsed. So Willie took advantage of this. Knowing that she could do almost anything, Willie brought her back to his filthy trailer that smelled like dirt and manure. Mud caked the floors and dirty dishes piled up in the sink. It stank like the rest of the farm, but Brenda looked past everything. She needed her next hit. And after they had sex, Brenda was thankful that it was finally over. But as she looked over at Willie, she could tell he wanted more. That the sex hadn't satisfied him. As she tried to gather her clothes from the floor, Willie jumped on her and pinned her against the bed. He clamped handcuffs around her wrists and restrained her to the bedposts. She tried to free herself, but he put his entire weight on top of her so she couldn't move. He then wrapped his filthy hands around her neck and squeezed as hard as he could. Dirt and sweat caked his hands, and his knuckles curled around her throat until the life slowly drained out of her. When he let her go, a ring of dirt and dark bruises coiled up around her neck. And just like the other woman, Willie dragged her body into the slaughterhouse, raised her up on metal hooks, and butchered her piece by piece. Brenda became the 53rd woman to vanish from the streets of Vancouver without a trace. As word spread around the women's shelter, Willie struggled convincing women to come back to his farm. More of them were taking safety precautions since women kept disappearing, so he had to change his strategy. Willie got the help of a few female friends to lure his victims. One of his friends was Dinah Taylor, or as she was known on the east side, the Witch of Endor. She and Willie had become friends in Lotrak, and Willie let her live on his property for 18 months. During these months, Dinah would go into women's shelters in Vancouver looking for vulnerable women. She would then convince them to come back to Willie's farm, promising them a good time, and she told them that Willie was a good guy that could be trusted. She even called him Uncle Willie and said he had plenty of booze and money to go around. The women knew not to trust the men on the street, but Dinah disarmed them since she was a woman of low track herself. She knew how to make friends with the women in the shelter and manipulate them. So with the help of Dinah, Willie had a new supply line of victims, and he also discovered new forms of manipulation. After getting them back to the trailer, Willie would accuse them of stealing from him instead of attacking the women out of nowhere 
This way he could work up his rage with an excuse while the women tried to convince him that they didn't steal anything. But in the end it was no use. Once the women were brought to Willie's farm, they were only leaving in barrels. By January of 2001, the number of women that were missing from the streets of Vancouver reached 62. With this many women missing, the Vancouver police could ignore the problem any longer. So in April, the Vancouver Police Department and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police finally formed the Missing Women's Task Force. They even promised a $100,000 reward for any information that would lead to an arrest. The hotlines were flooded with over 12,000 tips from locals. A handful of callers mentioned Willie Picton, the pig farmer east of Vancouver. Police added his name to a list of suspects since Willie had a prior assault charge, but they didn't look into him any further. Finding the killer seemed almost impossible to them. Most of the police didn't know how to look for a serial killer since they hadn't had to deal with one before. They also lacked the manpower, had disorganized records, and had no DNA bank to check the identity of the missing women. Even though they paid attention to the women disappearing around town, they didn't have the knowledge or resources to catch Willie. So he slipped through the cracks, just like he had before, and he kept on killing. In June of 2001, Dinah lured 22-year-old Andrea Josbury from the Roosevelt Hotel, where she lived at the time, and Dinah brought her back to the pig farm. Except Willie didn't strangle her like the other victims. Andrea was killed by a gunshot to the back of the head. Some even believe that Dinah might have killed her. And a few months later, Dinah lured 29-year-old Serena Abbotsway to the farm, and her fate became the same as Andrea's. But unlike the women before them, Willie dismembered them and stuffed their heads, hands, and feet into small buckets. He then stored the buckets in a meat freezer on his property. Instead of getting rid of the body parts like he usually did, he held on to them. He might have wanted to keep them as a trophy, or maybe just felt like he was invincible at this point. And since the police hadn't caught up to him yet, he didn't feel the need to clean up after his murders as quickly. As the women's frozen body parts turned white in the freezer, Willie went out hunting again. He had relied on Dinah to bring him victims for the past year or so, but he had the urge to go out again, just like old times. In November of 2001, Willie drove his van to the corner of Main Street and West Hastings Street, where he picked up a 26-year-old woman named Mona Wilson. Willie promised her free drugs and booze if she came along with him, so she hopped in the van. But instead of taking her back to his trailer, he brought her to a camper van parked behind a barn. It wasn't any nicer than his trailer. There was still the faint smell of manure along the floors. But it had two things that Willie needed. A bed and a location where no one was around. After Mona and Willie had sex, things didn't go as planned. Mona was stronger than Willie had expected, and she fought back when he tried to restrain her. He pinned her to the bed, but she resisted. So Willie curled his hand into a fist and began beating Mona as hard as he could, hoping she would give in. He launched his fist into her chest and her face, but Mona wouldn't give up. Seeing that he couldn't overpower her, he grabbed his revolver from the dresser and shot her point blank in the chest. Blood sprayed across the walls of the camper van, and as she bled out, a dark stain of blood pooled into the mattress. With the faint smell of manure, there was now the smell of blood and death inside the van. And Mona Wilson became another name on the long list of missing women. By the end of 2001, 63 women total were missing from Low Track, and police were no closer to catching Willie. On another dark night in Low Track, a woman known anonymously as Lenore stumbled down the street, incredibly drunk. She wandered the streets alone and could barely walk. Lenore was an indigenous woman from Cowichan Valley on Vancouver Island. Growing up, she bounced between several foster homes after her mother abandoned her when she was a baby. Throughout her childhood, she was raped and sexually abused countless times. And by the time she was 10 years old, Lenore had begun drinking heavily whenever she got the chance. And her bad habits followed her into her late teens. As she stumbled around low track, a mysterious white van pulled up next to her. As the window rolled down, she heard a man's voice call out to her. The man in the driver's seat wore a baseball cap that made his face look dark. She couldn't see his eyes, but he seemed friendly enough. He offered her a ride home, and she drunkenly agreed. When she got in the van, she noticed all the back seats had been removed, and it smelled like iron and bleach. Immediately, she had a funny feeling in the back of her head, and she remembered the stories of all the women that had disappeared throughout Low Track. As she looked over at the man, she could finally see his eyes. 
They had an eager glow to them like a dog waiting for food. She realized that something was off, but by the time she wanted to get out of the van, it already headed down the road at full speed. Willie told her he would take her to a local park, but she told him that she wanted to go home. When Willie asked her where she lived, Lenore thought it probably wasn't a good idea to tell him. His breath smelled rancid, and she could see traces of dirt along the lines of his forehead. He told her to relax, and he smiled. His yellow teeth were lined with dark stains. Lenore gripped the seat and told him to drop her off at Commercial Drive. She would then walk the rest of the way. But Willie didn't stop the car. He even acted like he didn't hear her. And it was obvious that Willie wasn't going to let her out. So as the van sped down the road, she reached for the door handle and opened it. The road below rushed past her as the van picked up speed. But she knew she only had a split second to make a decision, so she threw herself out of the van. She tumbled along the street and she quickly got up and brushed herself off. And she watched as the van hit the brakes and turned around to come back for her. So Lenore started running as fast as she could in the opposite direction. She heard the van's engine close behind her, but she ducked into an alleyway, ran between a few buildings, and found a group of people she disappeared into. She walked through the small crowd until she was sure the van was gone. The next week, as Lenore watched the local news, they reported several more women who had gone missing. Lenore gripped the armchair she was in, realizing that it could have been her. She could have easily been another victim to the monster in low truck. And one after another, the number of missing women continued to rise day after day. Luckily, the investigation finally made a break in the case, and their luck changed on February 1st, 2002. A local truck driver named Bill Hiscox, who had occasionally worked at Willie's Pig Farm, contacted the police. Bill had lost his wife back in 1996, and soon turned to drugs and alcohol. His foster sister tried to help him out, so she found him a job at P&B Salvage, southeast of Vancouver. P&B was owned by Willie and his brother David, so Bill often had to pick up his checks at Willie's pig farm. He described the place as a filthy dump, and he warned the police that the trailer was guarded by a vicious 600-pound boar. He told them that he had seen illegal weapons inside Willie's trailer, and since Willie was already on their list of suspects, and David had been convicted of sexual assault in 1992, police got a search warrant for the pig farm, and on February 5th, police raided Willie's property, and what they found shocked the entire nation. They'd initially searched for legal weapons, which they found, but they found much more than that. One of the first things was an inhaler on the floor of Willie's trailer. It didn't look out of the ordinary at first until police checked the name that was actually on the inhaler, and it was to Serena Abbotsway, one of the missing women from Low Track. At that point, they immediately arrested Willie and halted the search for illegal weapons. Their new goal was to find the missing women. As Willie spent the first night in jail, police searched the entire pig farm. And by morning, several news teams crowded the edge of the property where they reported the breaking news. Willie's face could be seen across every major news network. And somewhere in Vancouver, Lenore watched the news and recognized the man in the pictures. It was the same man in the baseball cap that had picked her up in the white van and chased her around low track. And she stood in awe as she watched, realizing that she had been minutes away from being raped, murdered, and butchered like the other women. She watched as squad cars and police trucks rolled into the muddy pig farm and raided every square inch of the property. The police were on the verge of opening up the biggest forensic investigation in North American history, and they searched every corner of the farm. They found two pairs of fur handcuffs, flavored body lotion, and a revolver that had a studded dildo attached to the end of the barrel. The DNA of Willie and one of his victims was found on the sex toy. They also found a syringe that contained three millimeters of a blue liquid and Spanish fly, which is an aphrodisiac made from crushed up beetles. When police looked into the camper van behind the barn, they found the scene where Mona Wilson had been murdered. Her blood still covered the walls, mattress, and carpets. As they looked around the area, they found her remains in a trash can outside of the van. As one of the investigators pulled the lid off of the can... He covered his mouth and gagged. Mona's head had been split open and her brain floated in a pink soup of hair and blood. Her hands had been stuffed into her skull, and Willie had even taken pictures of his creation to look at it later on. Meanwhile, investigators interrogated Willie back at the station. Question after question 
but Willie stayed surprisingly calm and denied everything. He kicked his leg up even up over the edge of the chair and relaxed like he didn't even care. And after 11 hours of questioning, investigators realized they weren't going to break him, so they changed up their strategy. Since Willie wasn't going to talk to them in the interrogation room, they planted an undercover officer in Willie's cell. And even though Willie knew he was under surveillance, inside of his cell, he still bragged to his new cellmate. I actually have a couple clips to show you of some of the footage that they took inside of Willie's cell. He told the undercover officer that he had killed 49 women and he was trying to go for an even 50, but he got sloppy. He also admitted to using the animal waste facility to get rid of the bodies. So on February 22nd, they charged Willie Picton with the murders of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson, but police knew that there had to be more victims, so they ramped up their search on Willie's farm. Police and forensic investigators swarmed the property with shovels and bulldozers. They created a grid of the entire property and searched every square inch. They quickly found the frozen buckets inside the refrigerator that had the heads, hands, and feet of Serena Abbotsway and Andrea Josbury. As they continued their search, they took thousands of DNA samples from the property. And by April 2002, they charged Willie with five more counts of murder. The news shocked Vancouver, and Willie made front-page news across all of North America. The women of Lotrak were relieved that the monster that had been hunting them was finally behind bars. But even with Willie in jail, Vancouver now had another problem. On March 11, 2004, British Columbian health officials admitted that human remains might have made their way into its local pork. Now the victim's family members had to deal with the fact that they might have eaten their loved ones after they died. And the horrors seemed to never end. The investigation on Willie's farm lasted almost two years, and it finally ended in 2005, and they had collected enough evidence to charge Willie with 27 counts of murder. Investigators believe that his victim count, though, was much higher, as high as 49. But since he had disposed of his victims by feeding them to his pigs and taking them to the animal waste facility, investigators could only find evidence of 27 victims. Willie's trial began on January 30, 2006, and people packed into the courtroom until it reached capacity. Willie's case had become a national spectacle, and everyone wanted to see justice in action. But justice was slow. Willie's pretrial hearings lasted almost an entire year. The judge, James Williams, dismissed one of the murder charges for lack of evidence. And since there were so many counts of murder, he had to divide the cases into two separate trials. The first trial started on January 2, 2007, and it included six murder charges. Willie pleaded not guilty to the murders of Marnie Frey, Serena Abbotsway, Georgina Pappen, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolfe, and Mona Wilson. In court, prosecutors showed the jury horrific photographs of Willie's terror. They were shown images of shackles, bloodstains, knives, meat hooks, night vision goggles, and metal wires. They were shown evidence of jawbones, skin, blood, hair, and fingers that had been scattered across the property. But one of the most chilling parts of the trial was Lynn Ellingson's testimony. She told the story how she woke up one night on Willie's farm and saw him butchering one of his victims. Other testimonies came from people who had known Willie and had been around the farm. 
Andrew Bellwood, a friend of Willie's, told the court how Willie would talk about how to take care of a hooker. He would then act out how he murdered his victims like a game of charades. In front of Andrew, Willie would handcuff his invisible victims, stroke their hair, and then strangle them with a wire cord. Another man named Scott Chubb also testified against Willie. Scott told the court that Willie once told him that the best way to kill a heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. Another testimony came from Lisa Yelds, a friend of Willie's who cleaned his trailer. She often found women's belongings and bloody clothing inside the trailer. She had told her brother, who then contacted police, but police didn't return his calls, and they brushed it off. Even though the evidence and the testimony stacked against Willie, the defense fought back. They said that Lynn Ellingson wasn't a credible witness because she had been doing drugs that night. And they also portrayed Willie as a simple farmer who wasn't smart enough to commit these elaborate murders by himself. They pointed fingers at Lynn Ellingson, Dinah Taylor, and said that these women were also responsible for the murders. They had found Dinah's DNA on 113 items throughout the farm. Her DNA was found on condoms, syringes, and handcuffs, as well as Mona Wilson's personal rosary. They made the argument that Willie couldn't have committed the murders by himself. On November 26, it took the jury two weeks to come to a decision. On December 8, 2007, the jury found Willie not guilty on all six counts of first-degree murder. They weren't convinced that Willie had committed the murders by himself. As you can probably imagine, many people in the courtroom began to wail and scream in response. But luckily, the jury found him guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. The judge ended up giving Willie the maximum sentence of life in prison and 25 years with no chance of parole. Willie appealed in 2009, but the Supreme Court rejected his appeal in 2010. As for Willie's second trial of the other 20 murder charges, prosecutors decided to stay the charges as they weren't going to continue with the case. There were still 57 women missing from Lotrack. A few of the missing women turned up after decades of being missing, but most of them are gone forever, and Willie won't face another trial. Many were outraged that those other 20 women won't see Willie prosecuted, but the prosecutors claimed that they would have struggled to convict Willie in the second trial. They also claimed that even if he was convicted of more murders, they couldn't add any more time to his sentence, but many of the victim's loved ones still wanted justice, justice that they would never see. After the disappointment, people turned their attention towards Willie's brother David. He had lived on the farm the entire time Willie was killing his victims, but David claimed that he didn't know anything about what his brother was doing, but many didn't believe him. In 2012, he was frequently seen in low track, but businesses began putting up signs around town with a picture of David saying, Beware, across the top. After being run out of town, David formed the Picton Foundation, and supposedly he was last seen in Ghana, Africa, helping poor people. Apparently, he fled the country while Willie went to prison for life. And what's crazy is that the women like Dinah Taylor, who had actually helped Willie lure his victims in, never served any time. As Willie sat in prison, he wrote a manuscript and released a book in 2016 called Picton in His Own Words. It was published by a retired construction worker named Michael Childress, and his name appears on the cover, but the manuscript was written by Willie in prison. Willie had given his manuscript to a former cellmate who had then delivered it to Michael. The 144-page book was poorly written and difficult to read. But in the book, Willie claimed that he was just the fall guy for the murders. He said that the women's body parts had been found in cars from police auctions and that the blood found in his trailer was just wallpaper glue. He even accused the Hell's Angels of several murders on the farm. It was even sold for $15 on Amazon for a while, but it was soon taken down. British Columbia then passed a law so that convicted murderers couldn't profit from their crimes. In 2018, Willie was transferred from a prison in British Columbia to a maximum security prison in Quebec. The following year, Willie had to briefly leave the prison for an unknown medical reason. But today, he is still locked up. And the trial for the other 20 victims will most likely never happen. In the end, the number of women Willie actually killed is still a mystery. He confessed to killing 49, but police charged him with 26 and they could only convict him on the second-degree murder charges for six of his victims. And after everything, severe criticism came down on the Vancouver Police Department and the Mounted Police. In 2010, the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry examined the cases and its failures, and they revealed terrible police work 
and the police's bias against sex workers and indigenous women. The case not only became a horror story about a dirty serial-killing pig farmer, but it showed how poorly the women of Low Track were seen by society. 63 women had gone missing during Willie's killing spree over that seven-year time span. As he took women off the street and into his filthy trailer one by one, police ignored the tragedy every single time. As Willie fed the women's remains through wood chippers and then fed them to his pigs, police shuffled through paperwork and never returned phone calls. As he hacked off limbs, fingers, and heads and stuffed body parts into animal waste containers, police ignored the growing number of missing women in low track. It was obvious that the unfortunate women of Vancouver weren't a priority, and they never would be. Even after police uncovered the horrific murders of countless low-track women and found the man responsible for their deaths, Willie Picton will be eligible for parole in February of 2027. Can you believe that? Willie will be up for parole if he's still alive. He's in his 70s now, but he could actually be released because they were only able to convict him on those six second-degree murder charges. That is so infuriating. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and this is a huge, huge issue. I'm sure anybody that lives in the Vancouver area, I mean, probably knows more about the low track area than I do. But I mean, there, this was a real, real issue. And it's a still an issue. I mean, there's tons of, especially indigenous women that are going missing all the time and literally nothing's being done about it. And I don't think anything was done to right these wrongs after, after all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy that they're not even to go and try. I mean, it, it's possible it could st- he could still be tried, I believe, for these other 20 murders that they're, they've charged him with, essentially. But it's also a real possibility that he will never be charged and he could even be set free, which is truly mind-blowing. Yeah. And just the lack, I mean, the lack of care, it's just like, it's just sick. You know, Willie is sick, but the police are sick as well. I mean, the fact that this volume of women are going missing from one area doesn't matter what they do for a living should matter to the police and the fact that the police just turn a blind eye and say oh we don't have resources to dedicate to this issue they could have gone anywhere is just sad i mean this is why serial killers oftentimes choose these types of people as targets because they know that that the police just don't care and that the police aren't aren't you know, it's not a priority for them to mm-hmm. to look into, you know, women that are sex workers or homeless or indigenous or, you know, any other reason. Yeah. You know, they just don't care. It's just not a priority. So it's just, it's truly sad. And, and just the sheer amount of horror, pain, and just torture that they endured under, under Willie's hands is just, is truly beyond comprehension. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine or wrap my head around how I would feel knowing that a loved one or a family member of mine died at the hands of this savage, savage individual. I mean, there's, uh, there's absolutely no reason this guy should ever get out, ever get out ever. on parole. Like right. the fact that that's even a possibility is just sickening. I can't even imagine how family members mm-hmm. must feel knowing that this monster, and I mean, who, who knows what he could do? He could go out and just do it again. Oh I mean, yeah. He probably hasn't learned shit in prison. No. It, there's no rehabilitation there and it's also mind-blowing that his accomplice didn't even get charged yeah. with anything Dinah just Taylor walked away walked free when absolutely unbelievable should be in yeah i mean a major misjustice she was here. a big piece in his whole dick twisted game you know so it's crazy it's absolutely crazy feel so sorry for the victims and the families and yeah i mean there's you know 49 potentially even more i mean that's just that's insane I mean, we have the whole list here from what we know of the victims, but there's so many names here. It's, it would take us a while just to read all of them. Well, we'll, we'll put them up on the screen for you so you can see. I mean, you can just mm-hmm. see the sheer amount of people, you know, how many lives that were that ended in in the most horrific ways possible. And just, uh, it honestly makes me physically sick thinking mm-hmm. about the things that they went through. I mean, it's it's beyond stuff of nightmares. It's just truly evil and just ah man when when you're dealing with somebody this evil this sick that is doing this to human beings it's just like why why even keep him around what's the point of even even giving him the possibility of walking free is just it's beyond comprehension it's it's maddening for sure this is one of those episodes that just 
leaves me at a loss for words because it's just hard to wrap your head around just the the things that Willie did and just the pain and agony that these victims went through. And, you know, my, my heart goes out to all the family members of, of these individuals. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not even something you can put words to. Uh-oh. And with that being said, I'm going to end this episode and, and just have a, a tribute little tribute play out uh, so that, you know, we can honor respect and remember the victims of this horrific killer. So that being said, I'll see you guys next time. Thank you.